Good morning. Let me also uh, welcome you. My name is Kyle, and I am pastor here. It's um, my joy to be the primary teacher of this church uh, under the Lord Jesus. And um, yeah, if you were here and you were just uh, coming, I do want to welcome you into our community, which incidentally is what we're talking about today, community. We're taking a break from our series on the Lord's Supper to talk about this idea of community. Uh, community is a very popular topic today. I suppose that that's one of the things that multiculturalism and globalization has forced upon us. It's the question, how can we all get along together in the midst of our differences? It's also a, a very important and popular topic in the Bible. It comes up over and over again. And in the verses that were just read, uh, they're here to describe and to encourage a flourishing Christian community. Uh, we don't often read them like that, and that's not uh, readily apparent to us, because most of the time we kind of put these under the category of those things at the end of the letters of Paul that are about personal ethical instruction. Uh, but what I want to suggest to you is that while there are very personal commands here, that every command is given in the context and for the sake of the community as a whole. And there's a good reason for that. That's because the reception of the gospel, for it to be real reception, must come to expression and social practice. And the practice of a community. That the community is the expression of the gospel and it taking root. It's the expression of the uniqueness of the gospel, which forms a very unique community, a community that is marked by God's own grace and love. So that's what we are going to look at this morning. But before we do, uh, before we do, uh, I need to pray for us and I need to pray for myself. Uh, I'll go ahead and let you know. I have a bad headache right now. I think it is due to jet lag, but pray for me as well as I pray for us. Let me pray. God, I pray for myself that in my weakness, I might know your strength and your strength might be manifest. And I pray that for others so that they might know the power and the purposes of Christ. That he might be present among us and that we might experience his glory. We pray these in his name and for his sake who is our, our savior and who we cast our lives upon now. Amen. Well, here's how we're going to approach this. We're going to look at the picture, the practice, the problem, and the path. The picture, the practice, the problem, and the path. That's for note takers. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it. All right? You might not hear any of those things, but I'm just setting you up so that you can listen all right, as we go. So first, uh, well, the picture. Paul paints in here a picture of 
community. And he uses one of his favorite images in verses 4 and 5 to do that. He says, for as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And Paul calls the church a body. Now, I want to sit on that for a second. Let's let that fire our imaginations for a second. Paul says that we as individuals are members of a body. That is, that we are like organs who are members of one another, vital to one another and dependent on one another. I mean, think of it like this. If I were to ask you, what would you uh, rather have if you could only have one? Would you rather have your brain or your heart? What would you say? Brain or heart, which one? Well, you need both. Your heart doesn't work without your brain, and your brain doesn't work without your heart. You have to have them both. They're both vital. They're both dependent on one another. In the same way, Paul says that that these members, uh, the members of the church, that they are like a body. They are so interdependent that every individual member is vital to one another. And note that in Paul's body, there is no appendix. Verse 5. We are all individually members of one another. See, the independence goes across the board. This is the picture Paul paints of a church, a community that is interdependent and vital to one another. Now, what does that look like in practice? How does that work out? Well, that brings us to the second point, the second P, practice. Let's look at the practice. And Paul, throughout this, gives many practices, many commands that are the working out of this interdependence. I'm just going to take some of them. I can't take them all. But, but, but first, interdependence looks like this. It looks like people supporting one another financially. Look in verse 13. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints. You know, we need money to live. Our kids don't quite know that yet, and then they start to figure that out. You know, I want this, I want this. Well, that costs something. We all need money to live. We are dependent on it. We are needy. And here, the financial needs are met through the saints, that people contribute to the needs of the saints, that they depend on one another financially, that financial needs are known and financial needs are met. Have you ever had that experience in the church? I have. Pam and I were in Cambridge, England. We were moving uh, flats. It's what they call them over there. It's our apartment. And as we were switching apartments, um, uh, we were living month to month at the time. Pam was switching jobs. Her paycheck didn't come in until another month. It was delayed a month. And we had a delay on a deposit, and we had to give a deposit. And so we were stuck And the deacons, they found out about it, they knew about it, and they came to us and they said, it seems like you might need something to help cross this bridge. Well, thanks. Yes, we do. And they gave us funds to meet our financial need. Have you had that experience? Have you had the experience of being, receiving resources from someone In the church? Have you had the experience of giving resources to someone in the church? This community is interdependent financially. And it's not just about writing a check, because notice Paul goes on, verse 13 contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This is a community where people are eager to show hospitality to one another. Now, in the ancient world, hospitality meant, by definition, 
inviting strangers into your home. Inviting strangers into your home. And that means in that day and time, hospitality was very vulnerable. Because you don't know how these people are going to act. And you don't know what they're doing. They might steal the silver candlesticks. And sometimes they did. And yet they are seeking to show hospitality. You know, hospitality is still a vulnerable thing. Maybe not in the same way, but it's still vulnerable because it means that you let people into your life. They see your home. They see the details of it. And especially when it's not entertainment, but it's really hospitality. See, entertainment lets people in, invites people in when you're ready. Hospitality invites them in when they are needy. And that's different. It says, come into our house, come into our lives. There is a vulnerability. This is a a community that is open, that is vulnerable, Are we open? Are we vulnerable? Have you invited someone who is new into your home ever or lately? And elders, we are supposed to be actually models of this. Have we invited people into our home, new people into our homes ever or lately? And you say, well... It's Santa Barbara, and homes are small. Yes, it is Santa Barbara, and homes are small, and it's hard. But you know what? Do you think the Romans' home were big? The conjecture of scholars is that the Roman church was mainly poor. The names that we find at the end of the letter suggest that they were actually descendants of slaves, and they lived in tenement houses, that is, in the slums of Rome, and they're seeking to show hospitality. Paul says to them, these people are vulnerable, and because of that, we find that these people are bound to one another emotionally. Look in verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. That is that the vulnerability creates new emotional attachments so that people who you could give a rip about normally, now you weep when they have a loss, and you rejoice when they rejoice. So when's the last time that someone else's loss, someone else's tears became your tears in the church? When's the last time someone else's success became your rejoicing, which sometimes is a lot harder, isn't it? To enter into someone else's success and rejoice, especially when you don't feel like you're having a lot of wins lately. But... There's so much interdependence here that another sad day is your sad day, and another's victory is your victory, and you can rejoice with them. You see, these people, they are loved as a family. Look at verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. You know, families are strange, because when you look at siblings, it's often the case that you see these siblings and sometimes, have you ever seen a family and you look at the siblings and you're like, how did they come from the same parents? You ever think about that? Yeah. Well, come meet me and my brother. This happens all the time, right? But there's a love between family members and that love is not based on affinity, likability. 
It's a love that, that is not based on any of the things that we normally base a love and affection on. It's based on the fact that we have a common father and common siblings. And here the brotherly affection that is shown is, is shown across people who would normally not have any natural affinities, but the only affinity that they have is that they have God as their father, they have Christ as their brother, and the Spirit as their bond. And so they love one another. And then not only do they love one another, they don't quarrel about petty differences or try to get their own way in this community. Look at verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. And in chapter 13, verse 13, Paul calls them to put off rivalry and jealousy. Anything, any attitude that would undermine the peace of the community, he says, put it off. And in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, he says uh, to the strong, that is those who don't attach their faith with social, um, cultural, indifferent things, he says, uh, for those who have attached their faith to that, like certain ways that you eat or vegetarianism or whatever, he says, if that's the case, then, you know, strong, you should submit to the weak. Um, you, you should do that because, because it's, it's adiaphora, it's indifferent, and so you, you seek to show them welcome and hospitality and you put away petty differences because those things are not intrinsic to the gospel. That in this community it doesn't matter whether it's French roast or light roast, which is hard for this roast. <laughs> they don't quarrel over petty differences. In fact, they go further than that. They don't retaliate when wronged. Did you hear in the reading early, verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. He goes on to say in verses 17 and 19 for that, that these people, this community, that the community of Christ is forbidden from vengeance and retaliation. In fact, much to the contrary, look in verses 20 and 21. If your enemy is hungry, you feed him. If he is thirsty, you give him something to drink rather than retaliation, rather than self-defense, rather than any of these things, what do you do for your enemy? You show your enemy mercy. You pile gifts upon them. And in this community, they speak well of one another. One of the most poignant verses in here is verse 10 where Paul calls the community of Christ to outdo one another in showing honor, to be first in being last. That is that this community, the um, only competition that they have is the competition to give compliments. What if a community was like that? We actually had an exemplar of that earlier. I'm going to call him out. Brian was sitting here and he was talking about how other people's gifts that they brought to the table he found were more valuable than his. What was he doing? He was outdoing other people and giving honor. And now I'm trying to outdo him by giving him praise right now. And I point that out because it is remarkable, isn't it? It is remarkable because it doesn't happen very often. And think about what would happen in a community if every time someone thought about saying something bad about something or poorly about something, someone, or someone started speaking poorly about someone, instead of that, you gave them a compliment. You praised them. 
You showed honor. And that was a competition to compliment other people. And in this community, each person takes ownership in the community's flourishing. There aren't any wallflowers. Look at verse 4. In verse 4, Paul talks about the fact that each person has been given a measure of faith as God has assigned. Now, that language, measure of faith, doesn't come across really well in the English. We're like, what does that mean? Uh, but it's actually a, a technical term uh, in the ancient world, and what it simply means is a trusteeship, a stewardship. Uh, that is that each person has been assigned a measured role of communal responsibility. And then he goes on to describe those roles. And he calls those roles a gift. As Paul's role as an apostle and a teacher is a gift, for by the grace, the gift given to me, I say to every one of you, so every member of the community has gifts, which they are to steward on behalf of the community. Verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service and our serving, if the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. See, everyone sees themselves as having a role to play. And that role is a gift to steward on behalf of the congregation so that everyone might support the congregation's emotional and spiritual and financial and physical well-being. So that's the, that's the picture and that's the practice. Do you see the problem? I mean, let me ask you a question. That's the first, fourth point, by the, uh, third point, by the way. Let me ask you a question. As you think about that picture, if you think about this interdependent body, as you think about these practices and what this community looks like, what interdependence looks like in practice, let me ask you the question, uh, this question, is this your experience of the church? How much does your experience of the church match this? You know, a lot of us have been hurt deeply by the church. The church has hurt me more, uh, the church has hurt me more than any other thing any other thing in the world. Some of us have been hurt deeply, and some of you can resonate. Some of you have been hurt much more deeply than I have. And so we look at this, and this just doesn't line up with our experience. We weren't shown hospitality when we brought questions. We weren't blessed when we were perceived to be an outsider or a threat. We weren't loved as family. We felt like we were doing all the work because other people weren't picking up their end. And so if that's our experience, then why doesn't it match this? I mean, if that's the case, then a lot of us want to say like, yeah, right, Paul. Nice vision, nice dream. But, but let's be honest, it's not simply that this isn't our experience of the church. This is also not how most of us view the church. 
And maybe one of the reasons why it's not our experience of the church is because, precisely because we don't view the church this way. I mean, if we were to, to say how we view the church, most of the time, and today I think most people view the church as not a body, but a commodity. It's like, and like the market, you go to different places to get your goods and services. You buy your meat from Gelson's and your milk from Trader Joe's and your magazine somewhere else. And so we view the church that way. If I were to paint a picture of what I think most people view the church like, it wouldn't be of a body. That wouldn't be the picture. It would be of a YMCA. A YMCA that you join that has different goods and services, uh, amenities, and you can choose to use those amenities. And the one that has the most amenities that match your needs, you go into. And so it's about convenience, and it's about schedule, and it's about what you get out of it, and it's about the coffee and the foyer and the apples at the end of the workout. And the reason you chose that YMCA over other YMCAs is because, or other health clubs, is because it had the most amenities to meet your needs. And if you are going to engage socially there, then that is completely up to you as far as how much and how deeply you want to go. That's how a lot of people view the church today, I feel like, and our culture. But that's not how Paul views the church. For him, the church is an interdependent body. And let's be honest, even if we don't view the church that way, really, truly, deep down, we all want that church. We all want that community. I get calls from search committees a lot asking if I know about candidates uh, who would be uh, good for their church. And when they call me, I ask the question, uh, well, what's, what's going on with your church? Tell me about it. What do people need? What do they want in this next phase of their life? And most of these churches have done these assessments about their church internally, seeing what people want. And, and every time, every time it feels like, uh, one of the things in the assessment is um, we have all these great things, but we really want to move deeper into life together. We really want more relationships. We want community. And it's not just churches out there. It's actually our church here because at the end of the year, we polled our ministry leaders and community group leaders and said, what are you dreaming about? What are your visions? What are your hopes? What do you want to see happen? What do you want to see us grow in? And people said, we want to see people grow in connection and life together. See, this is the church that we want. This is the community that we want. So here's the question. How do we get it? Well, that brings us to the path. The path. And more than a path, it's really a track. And it's a track with two rails. The first rail is this. To get this, we have to serve the Lord with one another. Look in verse 1. Paul begins by saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, there's something very odd about this. It's a very popular verse, and I'm sure that many of you know it, but have you really considered it? Because there are several oddities here. 
The first oddity would be this, the fact that Paul calls us to present our bodies, plural, as a living sacrifice, singular. Now that's odd. Why didn't he say bodies and sacrifices? That'd make more sense. I present my body as a sacrifice. Or why doesn't he say your body as a living sacrifice? Why, why, why not singular, singular, or plural, plural? Why plural bodies to sacrifice singular? Why does he do this? Well, is Paul bad at grammar? Well, actually, most Greek historians and experts would say he is bad at grammar. But I don't think that's what going, what's going on here. No, Paul is writing for the sake of a community. And he's calling that community to bring their individual bodies into a singular sacrifice. Uh, the book, Boys in the Boat, is about the University of Washington rowing team, their crew team. And this, uh, this crew team, they come from unlikely circumstances. All of them are low to low middle class. And they are struggling in the midst of the deep darkness of the depression to get through school, to get through life. And it's the story of how they end up winning the 1936 Olympics. Nine men. And one of the things that's uh, fascinating about the story is that it says that, that on their journey, the thing that they had to learn most was how to bring all of their actions, all of their bodies, every oar into harmony. They had to learn to follow the coxswain's voice. Push, pull, push, pull, push, pull. And really it's the story of them coming into sync. Because you can't win unless you have sync. The author describes it like this. He says, there's a musical beauty when several voices sing in perfect harmony. A similar effect happens in rowing. When all eight oarsmen are rowing in such perfect unison that no single action by anyone is out of sync with those of the others. It's called swing. Rowers cease being a boatload of individuals and become a single unit. It's not just a matter of getting oar strokes together. It's harmonizing every minute muscle action from one end of the boat to the other. Only then will it feel as if the boat is part of each of them, part of their body, moving as if on its own. Swing. What is Paul talking about here? He's talking about swing. He's talking about a congregation of people who bring their individual bodies into a single communal sacrifice. And this is what causes them to be interdependent. So well, where does that happen? Well, the most concentrated expression of it is right here, right now, in our corporate worship. It's here in the liturgy of the church, that is the order of service in the church, where we with one voice praise the Lord together, where we join our lips and our lungs, our hands and our hearts to sing and to confess, to listen, to eat and to drink. And we do it together. You see, it's the liturgy of the church, it's worship that 
helps us practice and to perfect swing. And the liturgy of the church is a protest against the rampant individualism that is destroying our communities and our culture. And so we come. We come and we praise the Lord with one voice together. Now, that is why Paul goes on to say this is your spiritual worship. And probably better translated, this is your reasonable worship. Because Paul is not talking about something that is immaterial. He's talking about joining your bodies together. And the word for worship there is where we get the word liturgy from. And in the ancient world, it actually had technical meanings of a public ritual of service. This is what Paul is talking about. But it's not simply on Sunday morning. Even though Sunday morning is the most concentrated expression of that, it's also supposed to work out into a singular sacrifice throughout the rest of the church's ministry and mission. Serve Santa Barbara is something that unifies us in our mission to this city, and uh, together we go out and we seek to love the poor and the stranger and the fatherless. And people ask me, why do we do that? I mean, can't we just go out as individuals and serve Jesus in our own individual lives together? Shouldn't we just do that? Shouldn't we be doing that? Now, that's a great question. Let me answer it for you right now. Yes. Yes, you should, as an individual, be going out and loving your neighbors and loving uh, people in your work, and through your work, loving this world as an individual and the respective callings that God has given you. Yes, you should. But you also should be participating in the communal sacrifice of the church. Because Paul's call is to unite our bodies into a singular sacrifice. That we do this together. We do this together for the world. So are you participating in the corporate mission of the church? Are we doing this together? Because the church, it's, it's, it's less like it's less like tennis and more like football. And you play tennis and you do it as an individual. But in football, you have to run the same offense or the game just doesn't work. And there are many valid offenses that you can run, but you all have to run them together. It doesn't work if the linemen are doing pass protection and the running back is on a running play. It's bad news. For those of you who didn't understand that analogy... <laughs> I don't have another one. <laughs> Come talk to me afterward. But we, ha we, have to, we have to figure out what offense to run and run it together. And maybe you don't like that offense. That's okay, but, but let's, let's contribute to the offense as we work to change it and talk about and negotiate which one works better. But we have to do it together. The option is not to go off in our own little silos. It doesn't work. It's not what Paul is calling us to. And so, this is one of the ways that we actually become interdependent. This is the first rail. But the second rail, the second rail is to, we not only need to serve the Lord with one another, we also have to serve one another as God has served us. Look again in verse 1. 
Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Everything that Paul says is predicated upon the mercies of God. Now, this idea of mercies of God alludes back to the things that Paul has been talking about throughout the letter, but particularly in chapters 9 through 11, when Paul is telling the story of Israel. There, back in chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, Paul interweaves the language of mercy, which means compassion, kindness, and grace, which means gift. And he talks about how at his time, the time that he's writing, there is a remnant from Israel. This is chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. And that remnant, he says, is chosen by grace. And then he says, this is the implication in verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now, that seems apparent to some of us, but I want you to know that that is not apparent. That is not in any way apparent because most of the time, grace, gifts, are actually given in accord with works. They're given in accord with works and with qualification. That's how gifts work. That's how we give gifts. Let's think about it for a second. If you were to give someone car insurance, right, who would you give car insurance to? Well, you wouldn't give it to a two-year-old, would you? So there's an age qualification, And then you probably wouldn't just give it to a 16-year-old. You'd give it to a 16-year-old who maybe passed the test and had a license. So they could actually drive. So there's a a qualification of intellect and work. And you probably wouldn't give it to any 16-year-old. You wouldn't just give it to the person who you happened to be sitting at the restaurant with and they had balloons next to them that said, Sweet 16, and people came around and sang to them. You wouldn't give it to them. If you gave it to someone, you'd probably give it to someone in your own family, like your own kids, maybe, maybe a niece or a nephew. But you wouldn't just give it to any random person on the street. No, see, there are There are qualifications in how we give gifts. We give gifts to people that are worthy, that are suitable recipients. But God doesn't give gifts like that. See, it's God doesn't give gifts on any qualifications. He gives gifts to the unworthy. He gives gifts to those who don't deserve it and have not earned it. See, this is a very natural, logical way that we give gifts, but that's not how God gives gifts. In fact, the only basis of God's gift is God's desire to give. Romans 9, 15 and 16 puts it like this, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. There are no qualifications. God's giving does not correspond to anything within the recipient that makes them a worthy recipient. So Paul, he has a specific understanding of grace, a specific understanding of mercy. That is that the gift that he is talking about is the gift of eternal life. And that gift is the gift of another's life, the life of Jesus Christ in you and for you. And that gift bears no relation to the status or achievement or worth of its recipients. God's gift of Jesus Christ is victory for losers. God's gift of Jesus Christ is hugs to the hostile. God's gift of Jesus Christ is love to the unlovable. 
God's gift to Jesus Christ is peace to the paranoid. God's gift to Jesus Christ is a party for prodigals. God's gift of Jesus Christ is life to murderers. It is the eternal life of Jesus Christ, which is really a life that is for you, a life that pulsates through you. And it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy, on God who gives. Now, what does that have to do with community? Everything. Because you know what undermines community? Pride. Thinking that we're more worthy than other people. And you know what else undermines community? Jealousy. Thinking that other people are more worthy than us and being upset about that. And you know what else undermines community? Rivalry. Competition to show who's the most worthy. We see, God's gift, it undermines all that because grace says you cannot look to yourself and other people cannot look to themselves. It doesn't depend on human will or exertion. And so the grace of God, it humbles us for community. It's, it's no wonder that the very first specific pointed command Paul gives in this chapter to every single individual is there in verse 3. And he calls us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. See, what do you have that you did not receive? It is by the grace of God that I am what I am. And what made me worthy of that grace? What made you worthy of that grace? Was it because you were white or because you were brown or because you were black? Was it your IQ score or the ways that you had fulfilled certain moral traditional values or maybe non-moral traditional values? Was it because you were so environmental growing up? What was it that qualified you for grace? Nothing. It is a gift that is given to the unworthy. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And so Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And then he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Notice that the transformation of the mind happens first through bodily practice. But the first place in which the mind is transformed, I think, is in how we evaluate ourselves and others before the Lord, where we see that my only worth, the Bible calls it righteousness, is outside of me in Jesus Christ. And your only worth is outside of you. And that makes it all level. And everything we have is gift. This allows us, humbles us, so that we can go in and we can actually serve one another rather than compete with them. And it enables us, it frees us from holding up our standards of community over people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said this, he said, those who love their dream of Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become the destroyers of that community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Man, I need to hear that. You know what he's saying? He's saying, if you love your idea of community, you're going to destroy community. But if you love people, you create community wherever you go. If you love people regardless of their worth, because you don't look at worth, because now worth has been recalibrated according to God's gift in Jesus Christ. See, that creates community. The grace of God, it, it, 
It humbles us for community, but the grace of God also frees us for community. I mean, why do we boast, and why do we look for recognition, and why do we feel snubbed so often? Because we're deeply insecure. I'm deeply insecure. I feel snubbed all the time. I felt snubbed the other week at church, and I was like, I'm not getting the recognition that I should be getting right now. If I went into more details, that wouldn't be good, so I'm not going to do that. But I feel snubbed. Why? Because we're deeply insecure. But you see, when, when we have the worth bestowed upon us of Jesus Christ, and God deems us worthy not for who we are or what we have done, but simply because of Jesus, then I don't have to actually look for power and praise and recognition because I have all that I, have already, all that I need from God now and will receive it on the last day. And so we don't have to go hungry seeking for, we don't have to be hungry for honor, but we can give it away. We can outdo one another in praise. See, the grace of God, it frees us for the community, but the grace of God also motivates us for community. I mean, you think about some of these things that Paul is talking about. Forgiving those who wrong us, showing hospitality to those who are different from us, blessing those who curse us. And we ask, why would we do that? Why would we not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think? Why would we associate with the lowly? Well, for one reason, because they aren't lowly in God's eyes. But for another reason, because isn't that how God treated us? He welcomed us, welcomed one another as Christ has welcomed you, not for anything we are or anything we have anything we've done? Wasn't it God who himself blessed those who persecuted him that when we put him to death on a tree, he poured out his spirit upon us? And isn't the God the one who forgives those who have wronged him? You see, what grace does is it actually motivates us for community because grace is... Uh, the community is the overflow of grace in communal expression. Leslie Newbegin, the missionary and writer, he said that the community of faith is the hermeneutic of the gospel. And what he meant by that is that is this, that when people hear the gospel, they don't understand what you're talking about if they haven't actually been um, acclimated towards it, especially in a post-Christian or non-Christian society. But he said that the way people understand the gospel and the way the words make sense is because they see it embodied in a community together. Because the community, it instantiates the grace of God and the effect that it's taken in the world. And so community is not tangential to the good news. It's integral. And it's not just any type of community. It's a community that bears the distinct marks of the novelty and radicality of the grace of God, which is unconditioned and given without regard to worth. So let's see if we can grow into that together. God, I do pray that we would receive your grace and that it would work out in tangible social practices here that your grace would humble us and free us and motivate us, that the world might know that you give 
generously and radically to those who are not worthy and in so doing bring about a new creation. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory's sake. Amen.